I'd like to welcome you to our services this morning, particularly if you are a guest visiting with us. We hope and pray that today's service has been so edifying for you as we seek to glorify our God. There are times in which when we go through scriptures, that there are a bunch of passages that we like to just take it, grab it, and run, if you will, with it, and actually miss the message because we get stuck on a particular passage and use that passage. This is one of them. I'm going to use it the way it's typically used in, in modern um, situations when we talk about spiritual discipline, but really there's, it's just an opposite um, context to what we're going to be reading, and that's what hopefully I'll bring out at the very end of the sermon. Uh, but that said, we often do that because sometimes the way we study or the way we package our words brings us to a conclusion that may, well, not be what we were intending. I'll give an example. If I were giving announcements, and by the way, giving announcements, hard, right, Brad? <laughs> so if I were to say, it's bad enough having one child, what would you think? You know, <laughs> if you have seven. So <laughs> anyway, I knew what Brad meant. <laughs> Brad knows what he meant as well. Poor guy's all red now. <laughs> I apologize, Brad. But so you get the point, though. Sometimes it's the way we package things. And so it brings a message that was not intending, or it is what we are intending, but someone else receives it differently. It happens. Um, I believe this is one of those in modern situations that we look back at a passage um, that was written 2,000 years ago. And I think because of the way we look at things from a modern perspective, we don't get the message that was packaged together. This is one of them. So I'm going to start off with the way it's typically used, and that is this. So when we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, particularly when you read verse 8, um, and you got some new translations, uh, New Living Translation is one of them that really packages it very differently. But basically it says here in verse 8, bodily exercise, and I'm reading out of the New King James Translation, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so what many come away with the idea is don't exercise because it hardly profits you at all. And that is far from what was being said. And so some then will say, okay, now what is being said? And saying, oh, so exercise is important, but spiritual exercise is even more important. Well, that's not even what is being said. But that's how it's often used in Scripture. Let me just make it very clear. Exercise physically is very good for you. It is. I mean, it's all the research, and it just keeps piling on every single year, year after year. Research is conclusive. Physical exercise is necessary if you want to have chronically good health. Um, and even the word chronic is not even used in a positive way that way, typically. But from better brain function, detoxing the body... Better energy helps with hormones and so on and so forth. There's a, a whole variety, a slew of studies that show how important exercise is for you. And when you do that, it helps you in so many ways, including spiritually. But that's not the whole purpose for the study or the sermon, if you will. On the flip side, the opposite of exercising is the couch potato mentality and we we live in a time where everything is done for us you know we don't have to go and draw water and bring it back to the house um you know we don't have to 
um, do the dishes stereotypically. We just got to put them in, let it be done for us, or laundry, or computers. We don't have to write things now. Everything is just automated so much. But in this 2014 study, I thought this was very interesting. WebMD shows, and this WebMD was collecting all these studies and, and kind of summarized them in these three bullet points, that when you have excessive sitting, if you will, I think of just all the, the TV or monitoring, uh, whether it's work or, or um, relaxation, we do. But it's worse for mental health, higher risk of death from heart disease, and a higher risk for becoming disabled. Uh, interesting thoughts with regard to that. Again, that's not the focus. But I just want to show you that when we look at passages like this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, and we come up with conclusions and we run with sermons on them. That's not the point of why Paul was writing. But to keep with this mantra, make it very clear. Either use it or lose it. What is true physically, right, use it or lose it, is true spiritually, even more so. So when we talk about walking with the Lord, we've been, there are passages that says that if we're not progressing forward, we actually fall back into perdition. That's what happens. And so when we look at the passage of 1 Timothy chapter 4, let's find out what exactly Paul is saying. Okay? And so even all these things are true, let's look at what he is talking about. We just had read for us verses 1 through 9. I want to focus in on this passage, particularly in verse 3, because verse 3 gives us the defining of why Paul is saying what he is saying. You see, there's issues going on among the saints where there are Christians that are forbidding others to marry, forbidding others to eat certain foods. So what they're doing is they're binding and creating these laws upon their brethren, and Paul is addressing this. So... Keep that in mind, verse 3. Go back to verse 1, and let's reread this text from that vantage point. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So whatever this is, this deceptive teaching is not of truth, it's not of God, but on the contrary, the opposite of demons. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And here's the hypocrisy, forbidding to marry. If we fast forward over the centuries from when this was written, there are sects within the, the, the phrase Christianity that actually had their unwritten laws you cannot marry. Like if you become a gospel preacher or a quote-unquote a priest of the cloth, right? You cannot marry. And, and so others had taken that on and, and they solidified these kinds of teachings in the doctrines of men forbidding to marry. Others were continuing, not unlike the Jews, but including Gentiles. This is, I think, the very beginnings of what we call Gnosticism, where they forbade to eat certain foods. Or maybe certain times of the day. Or maybe just eating so very little of it. Whatever the situation is, we're not told specifically. But these individuals were forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. Which we are told that God created. 
to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So here's the error, forbidding marriage, forbidding um, foods, and here's the truth. God created these things for us to enjoy with thanksgiving. That's the point that he's making. He goes on to say then this reality, verse 4, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. I remember back in 1990, I think it was 95 or 6, I went to, Emilia was not even a year old, went to go pick her up and my back went out. I mean, I was taken, carried by men um, to our house and then Julie drove me up to see a chiropractor and I was there. And during that time, I got to know our chiropractor and he basically was telling me, you know it's a sin to eat meat. I'm just wanting my back adjusted. <laughs> and I said, okay, um, interesting that you say, oh yeah, from the very beginning, God did not intend for us to have meat. It was because of sin. And so eating meat is with sin. And I'm thinking, my word, does he not read the rest of the Bible? This passage is very clear. Every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. It is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. He then goes on and says, if you instruct the brethren, in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. In other words, there was error, abstain from these things, and there was truth. All things that God made was good. Receive it with thanksgiving. Sanctify it through prayer, giving thanks to God. That's the context here. So what we're talking about when we're, we're talking about this spiritual discipline, if you will, is being able to discern between this truth and this error that's being brought out. The error, of course, was the abstinence of marriage and the abstinence of certain foods. This is the thing with any other area of God's word. In fact, remember in Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrew writer wants to talk about Melchizedek. But he's not able to get into this because, brethren, they were so stuck on the elementary things and couldn't even get past it. Go back to Hebrews 5. Beginning in verse 11, I want us to, to look at the text and see um, what this writer is saying. And then verses 13 and 14, which has a lot to do with our sermon this morning. So in Hebrews chapter 5, packing up to verse 11. Speaking of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, hard to explain since some of you are, have become dull of hearing. So remember, you don't use it, you lose it. So a lot of them have become dull of hearing. By this time, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, here's how you have full of age. Those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. There are brethren that are growing up in the Lord only on milk. And there are brethren that are growing because they're exercising, if you will, 
discerning between good and evil. They're continually growing in the Lord, and as a result of their practice, their exercise, they have their senses trained to make that discernment. This was the problem with the first century church, and if we're not careful, this is the problem of any century church. The mature know the difference because they grow in the Lord in this way. So when we're talking about this passage here in 1 Timothy um, chapter 4, make it very clear, and then we're going to extrapolate from the context here. Everything created by God is good. Do you all believe it? See, it's easy to say yes until we actually get into, well, what about such and such? Think about things that God made that man calls evil. Right? Slugs. Cockroaches. Well, those are easy. Let's see now. God makes drink. God makes Coke. Not Coca-Cola. God makes plants that are used. That are evil in the, in the minds and hearts of many who call themselves Christians. Everything is good, now we're told. So is everything good, yes or no? And so here's the thing that when we use it, of course, we can abuse it for the flesh and all these things that many have done. And no wonder we have all these laws. But brethren, here, there's foods. We have no problem with foods, but when you're in the first century and when you have the the future Gnostics coming down the road, this is the very beginning of it. Or when you have Jews that are wanting to bind, you know, those animals are unclean. And we can give human reasons why they're unclean, let alone ritualistic reasons, ceremonial reasons, old covenant reasons. These animals are clean for such and such reasons. Well, guess what? Everything God created was good. But people were putting them in a category of bad or evil. Even marriage is good. But people think marriage is bad. And not to Brad or anything. Some people think having children is bad. It's an amazing thing when we bring all these things into the equation of spiritual discipline. Where we're not able to even discern good from evil. And that somehow when someone says, well, we can eat these meats... That brethren would look at them saying, you're evil. You have no regard for, and then fill in the blank. Timothy's role, the apostle Paul gave him, was to point out these differences. Was to point out the difference because brethren weren't doing so. And as a good minister, it was his responsibility to, to ensure that they would know, in Christ, all that we have is good. In Christ, not according to the flesh, so to speak, as some would use things for the flesh, whether it be these meats, or maybe it would be the relations between a man and woman that would be abused. He says in verse 6 and 7, let me go back to 1 Timothy. Again, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And notice the words that he uses, nourished in the words of faith 
and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables. Exercise yourself toward godliness. And that is the point that he says. Exercise yourself toward godliness. That is the wholesome, healthy teaching of Christ that he wants him to teach his brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, with this in mind, take Hebrews chapter 5 and also now go to Colossians chapter 2 because the problem that Paul is, is wanting to deal with through Timothy, where Timothy would travel, includes Colossae. So go to Colossians and read Colossians chapter 2 with me, particularly in verses 20 through 23. So this idea of Gnosticism where you have this worldly humanistic reasoning would infiltrate the body of Christ. And Paul deals with this in the second chapter of Philippians. And particularly when you go further into the chapter, this mindset was brought into a dogmatic equation, if you will. And so now he's dealing with legalism. So in verse 11, he says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hand, putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You're buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And because of that, then, you walk according not to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So with that in mind, he says in verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of this world, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Right? You died to all these humanistic um, things. You can call them regulations if you want. And now you're, you're subjecting yourselves to these very regulations in Christ. Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle, verse 21. Which all, concern, or which all concern things which perish with the using according to the, uh, the commandments and doctrines of men. Why are you doing that, he says. So there is this teaching, don't touch, don't handle, don't taste, all these man-made regulations. And he says, these are commandments of men. These things in verse 23, indeed have an appearance of wisdom... In self-imposed religion. False humility and neglect of the body. But of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, it's no better than those that indulge in the flesh. This opposite extreme. We're talking about asceticism, if you will. Where you... Keep from everything in the name of self-control. But instead of it being self-control, which I think is a very different word usage, it's self-abasement. All right? So um, I'm not going to eat meats. And I'm going to, I'm only going to eat this kind of food. And I'm going to keep from like watching TV, right? That's a good thing to keep from watching TV. I'm going to live like the Essenes of the first century. I'm going to stay away from, and so I have this aesthetic lifestyle. He says, 
These things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. It is false humility. The neglect of the body are of no value against the opposite extreme, the indulgence of the flesh. He goes on to say in chapter 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. In other words, he's saying the same thing as what Paul told Timothy to teach. Brethren, seek to live a godly life. Well, what does that mean then? I thought if I keep from all those things, I am living a godly life. No, that's a life of self-abasement. There's a big difference. Look at what he's saying here. There's a difference between self-abasement, bodily discipline in 1 Timothy 4, which is no better than the self-indulgence that we just read of in in Colossians 2, versus what is called self-control or godliness. So here's an example. Paul gives it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's other examples. In 1 Corinthians chapter um, 7, not 5, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to the brethren at Corinth about marriage. He said, your body is not your own. It belongs to your spouse. But even as you're married, there are times in which both of you will decide not to be together. You will abstain from being together. But that is so that you can give yourself or exercise yourself in fasting and prayer. So there's a purpose. It's to exercise godliness. It is not simply you're going to stay away from each other and then that's going to make you better husbands and wives. Um, opposite is actually true in times because you cause your spouse or yourself, if you will, to look elsewhere. So he says, have your own wife, have your own husband. So that's an example of self-control versus self-abasement. You're exercising godliness for the purpose of naturally glorifying God or benefiting your brother or sister in Christ. So therefore, when we talk about this bodily exercise, bodily discipline in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he's not talking about this concept of strength training or running or, you know, that kind of exercise. He's talking about self-abasement. Bodily discipline is profitable in a limited degree. This idea of, of keeping your body from certain things. He contrasts that abasement with spiritual discipline, which is called godliness. That's the part that he's focused on. And so what it looks like, as the Apostle Paul is talking about, is this. You're put off the old man. Take off sin. And he talks about these things um, in other passages. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth, lying. And the opposite Put on all these things, the new man, the spiritual man, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving each other, and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's what we're told in Colossians. That's what we're told in Philippians. That's what we're told in, um, in 1 Timothy. All these things, um, Galatians 5, all these lists that you can come up with show the difference between this concept of self-abasement, a form of discipline of the body, if you will, and true godliness, the exercising of yourself in a way that you love your God, love your neighbor. That's what we're seeing in, in actual practical ways right here. Here's the flesh. 
Here's the flesh. Really think about this. Oh, Mitch said, Mitch said, everything is good. Now, run with your flesh and go fill in the blank. And I can tell you already I've got the list in your head. We can do this, this, this. You missed the point then. There are those who use that as self-abasement. And in that case, that is no better than the indulgence of the flesh. Because it's all about the flesh. It's all about this, as we were talking about in our morning class, one of the side points was performance religion. The real performance, if you want to talk about it, is an active faith like this. That's what he's saying. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Did God make everything good? Yes, he did. Every single thing. There's nothing that God made that was bad. Nothing that he made was like, there's a temptation for you to stay away from that. Everything he made, save that tree in the midst of the garden, was for us. We go and use it against, against God in the abuse called the flesh. And the flip side is from an aesthetic standpoint, look at me. I stay away from this. I stay away from that. I don't do this. I don't do that. As if now I'm somehow better. That problem was what Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy chapter 4. There are going to be those that leave the faith. And through their hypocrisy, through their deceit, through their lies, they're going to have these teachings, don't do this, don't do that. He said, everything God made is with thanksgiving. If it is sanctified in prayer. So when we're talking about these spiritual disciplines, brethren, I want you to think, how is it that I'm living my life? Is it about what I don't do? Or is it about godliness? Now, I want to make a personal observation. When you don't do certain things, for the sake of keeping your body pure, that's always good. Every single time. But do it in your service to the Lord and not as a picture where we start binding this idea of this aesthetic lifestyle on every single other person saying, well, you, since I don't do it, you can't do it. We've got to learn the difference between that abasement and seeking godliness. Now, that may put on a lot more questions. That's for a whole study in itself. But I want you to look at these spiritual disciplines. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about exercising ourselves in godliness. What does that look like? And that is where you love your neighbor. And so you're going to watch your mouth. You're going to check your heart. You're going to look and evaluate your attitude. How is it toward each other? How is it toward God? Paul says, teach them these things, and you'll be a minister nourished on sound teaching. Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for both the present life and the life to come. How you live in your life? Is it full of godliness? Because that's the picture that God wants for us. That's a picture that Paul tells Timothy, you teach, you preach this. If you're set on the flesh, you're walking in darkness. 
And the flesh goes after a whole lot of things and justifies a whole lot of things. There, in fact, are Christians that will seek to justify things because of the flesh. Don't do that. It'll just lead you down a path away from God. The flip side, as we mentioned this morning, is don't base your life on this performance, religion. It's on Christ. And your idea is to be transformed, to look more and more like him, to live more and more like him. That's what the picture looks like. And that's what Paul says, I want you to do. That's for life here and the benefit to come in, in the life to come. What's your relationship like with the Lord? Do you have one? So most of you here, as a family of believers, you have one. You can reflect on these things, and hopefully, if you've not been living this way, repent. But you may be here, and you may not have a relationship with him. And I cannot look at every single one of you and know that, but you do. Don't justify your life before the Lord. Submit your life to him. Let him justify or have, have him be your justification, I should say. It is through his blood that you can be washed in it and rise to walk in newness of life. We've looked at those passages just this morning. You can have that. And I beg you to have that right now. It's a choice by faith you can take, believing that Jesus died for your sins. If you're here and you want to become a Christian, please do so. If you want to return to the Lord, by all means, please do so. Why not do that? Right now, together we stand and sing.